Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, my name is Pamela Jr., and I'm the director of the two Mississippi museums, and I'm here today uh, regarding a presentation for the Mississippi Book Festival. Today we're talking about this amazing book called Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country. It's a great book, the Benton County Civil Rights Movement. And I have the luxury of introducing all of you to Mr. or Dr. Roy DeBerry, who's told me to call him Roy, and I'll make sure that I try to do that, <laughs> keep that on point. But I want to talk a little bit before we get started on uh, the mission of the Hill Country Project. It's a nonprofit 501c3 organization located in Benton County, Mississippi, where they record the stories of the residents of Benton County who have lived through the modern civil rights movement and beyond and provide education support to the local school district. And with that, I want to introduce you to Dr. Roy DeBerry, who is the executive director. And if you will allow me just to read a little bit about him. Mr. Dr. DeBerry is a native of Holly Springs, Mississippi. He's the executive director and one of the founders of the Hill Country Project. He was active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, first as a Freedom School student whose teacher was Hill Country co-founder, Aviva Tuturian, and then as a general organizer. Roy earned his bachelor's degree in sociology at Brandeis University in 1970. Continuing his education there, he went on to earn a master's and later a doctorate in political science. He has also pursued additional studies at Jackson State University, Duke University, Carnegie Mellon University, the University of Michigan, and Harvard. Woo-wee. That's a whole <laughs> lot of education there, <laughs> oh, Roy. And so from there, let's talk a little bit. I'm just a country boy from Mississippi, Miss Jr. Okay, Pam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> who's, who's traveled the world. <laughs> and just to give just a little synopsis of the book, if you don't mind. And of course, I got this from Google. And I'm going to let you go on and tell a little bit. But it's a collection of interviews with residents of Benton County, Mississippi, an area with a long and fascinating civil rights history. And from there, I'm going to let you explain a little bit about this amazing book that you and some others have written. Well, thank you. And thank you. And also, I'm just honored that you are the, the head of two museums uh, there in Jackson. I've had a chance to visit both museums, and I'm just so impressed with uh, those museums. I just think that, and I'm not being overly biased here, that I've gone through a lot of museums, but I think ours in Jackson is one of the best I've seen. Thank so again, uh, I want to just put out that plug for you. Thank in you. terms of, of uh, a background, in terms of the book, it, it was really uh, an idea that grew out of a a SNCC conference, which was a reunion that took place in 1985 in Jackson, as a matter of fact. And at that conference, we listened to people, particularly veterans of the civil rights movement. And I'm a vet too, but a young vet, you know, but we were around listening to the older vets, you know, uh, the, uh, the Bob Moses and others of the world. And we listened to them talk uh, and, and swap stories about uh, the movement. But one of the things that we saw was missing, or at least I thought was missing, was this notion of young people. How would young people be engaged and how would they be involved? And we found that when we talked to young people, say in Benton County, a lot of them had no idea 
that their ancestors, that their parents and grandparents had participated in, in a major uh, transformation in this society. So that was one piece. Uh, the other piece was that we felt the literature had done a great job, and rightfully so, of documenting the, the giants of the movement, the Aaron Henrys of the world, the Mega Evers of the world, the Dr. Kings of the world, the Fannie Lou Hamers of the world. And those people are iconic. John Lewis, Stokely Carmichael, Ivanhoe Donaldson, uh, Marion Barry. So that we knew about. But what I thought was missing, and we thought was missing, uh, was this notion of people from the Hill Country, particularly a place like Benton County, which is a small uh, county, poor county in North Mississippi, not too far from the Tennessee border. And I had known a man named Mr. Henry Reeves, and so had one of my co-editors. And this man had been engaged back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And they had uh, found an organization. They couldn't call it the NAACP at that time because if they had done that, they would have been lynched or run out of town. So they, had, they organized something called the Bend County um, Freedom Club. And, and, and from that, they were able to continue their organization sort of clandestinely. And, but they continued to do that. And we felt as we came in contact, and I came in contact with Mr. Reeves during the 60s, and others, that these people who were playing a significant role and was doing something very significant in terms of voter registration mainly, but also in terms of school integration. And we felt that that story had not been told. And then we decided, Aviva and I initially, that said we, one way to get at that is that we're going to interview people. Now, at the time, we were not pros. We didn't know anything about interviewing. We didn't have cameras. We didn't know how to use cameras. But we did solicit Will Cologne, you know Will Cologne from up in Columbus, the well-known lawyer, who um, had some experience with a camera. And Viva uh, and I practiced uh, uh, going over questions and things like that and, and sort of trying to hone our skill about how you interview. And so we did initially about 15 of these, very rough. Uh, and later on, Aviva was able to take those uh, interviews and share with John Lyons, who was a friend of her in Chicago, who's had done some documentaries and had been a filmmaker. And he agreed to make a uh, documentary of that first 15 groups of people we had interviewed. And we showed it at a church, uh, Mount uh, Zion Church there in Ashland, there in Benton County. And the people were just fascinated, first of all, to see themselves, but secondly, fascinated just to see that people thought enough of them to say, you're important enough to be put in film. You're important enough to be documented. And from that, we decided to continue. And we continued and continued till we ended up with like 100 uh, people we interviewed. Now, one of the things we wanted to do early on was to interview the older people first because we knew over time that they would pass on. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, now, we hadn't thought of a book at this time. We were just trying to get people uh, documented, trying to get the record down. And we also wanted to, that's the education piece, we also wanted to pass this skill on to young people in Bend County, particularly students who could also engage this process of interviewing. We've had a few to do that, not as much as we would like. Uh, but the book thing came later. We said, okay, we'll do the documentary thing first, and then out of that, uh, maybe we can get a book. So the idea of a book, discussion about the book came along around 13, 14, 2013, 2014. And then we started to actually write the book about 2016 or so. Uh, took us about two years to write the book. We approached the press. Uh, with a concept. They liked the concept. They asked us to do more work. We did. We asked a few other people about it. And uh, 
And so we end up with the book. But essentially what we wanted to do was to focus on North Mississippi, focus on the hill country, uh, and not take anything away from the Delta, because I love the Delta, and I love the people from the Delta, and I love the kind of work that the people have done. Love Fannie Lou Hamer. I had a chance to meet Fannie Lou Hamer. Was okay. in Atlanta in 1964. Uh, didn't get inside. We stayed on the outside. She came out and sang, and, you know, and she had a beautiful voice. So I have a great love and appreciation, but we just felt that there was a gap. And this book uh, was one way uh, to fill some of that gap. My daughter tells me when she read it, She's about 38, 39. And she said, you know, Dad, um, one of the things that a book like this does is fills the gaps. And so I thought that not only we, when, we, when we did this book, would it be for the general audience, but also we wanted it to be for school kids and for school systems throughout this country and throughout this state to adapt. You know, one of the things you know very well is that civil rights is mandated now. But a lot of times we don't have material to teach. And then a lot of times teachers that teach civil rights don't know anything about how to teach civil rights because technically in our education schools, uh, they don't uh, emphasize that. So we think a book like this can fill the gap and we think a book like this ought to be part of the curriculum as well as for the general reader. So I've gone on a long ways, but- That's uh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Uh, I, I wanted to, to uh, just kind of, actually some historical to give some historical context about Benton County but can you talk a little bit about Benton County right now and that way the the listening and viewing audience can know just a little bit about this place called Benton County and then we'll okay. dive into the book and some of the the amazing players of Benton County we'll dive okay, into Okay thank the you. Thank you Miss Julia uh, Pam um I'm from Holly Springs and from Marsha County, which is next door to Bend County. Uh, why Bend County? I've been asked that question. And of course the question is why not Bend County? Um, my first experience with Bend County was in the 60s when I went out and I mentioned that in the book when I was uh, involved in a prep class. Um, there were some of us who were, um, people thought had the ability and the capacity to go on to uh, college. And so uh, Aviva and some other folk uh, talked uh, some classes, some novels, uh, 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 essays, uh, and thought that we should be exposed to as much as possible while we were 11th grade, 12th grade in high school. And so that was sort of my first exposure. Although Mrs. Reeves, who is mentioned in the book, who is the wife of Mr. Henry Reeves, is somebody I know, have known a long time. Her dad, Mr. S.T. Nero, was from Holly Springs, and I had the utmost respect for him because he had been, in my judgment, a courageous man who uh, took on the system of white supremacy at a time when it was not safe to do so. So I just always had this affinity for the, some of the people in Benton County. Benton County is a small county, uh, about 45 miles uh, south of Memphis, about 8,000 people. I think the most it's ever had is about 12,000 people, about 40% black, about 60% white, a uh, very conservative place, uh, except for the movement part. And uh, mostly farmers, a lot of historical sharecroppers, uh, although the people we've met and spoke with in Benton County uh, have owned land in Benton County for a long time. And that's one of the things we talked about in the book is that a lot of people who were uh, courageous enough to take part in the movement uh, were landowners. Because as you know, when you own land, it was difficult 
uh, for people to put the kind of pressure they could put on sharecroppers. Because sharecroppers or people who were renting would simply, if they attempted to vote, would be uh, kicked off the land. So small county in North Mississippi, a county that's uh, had uh, a significant uh, voter registration uh, drive, and, and I think at some point uh, proportionally may have been the largest proportion of people registered to vote during the early 60s. One of the first counties to get a federal registrar uh, was Benton County. Uh, and as I said, just had a terrific, terrific leader in Henry Reeves who was able to instill those kind of values in so many people. And when you interview, when you read this book, you'll see the people we interview almost to the person. They had something to say about Henry Reeves, whether it was going around pressuring people, because that's the right word, to register to vote. And when they would see Mr. Reeves, and I don't want to give the story away, but when they would see Mr. Reeves come, they would go the other way because they didn't want to, you know, admit to them, him, that they had failed to do so. So he was just a tremendous uh, person. I was attracted to Ben County primarily because of that and because of people like him. You know, I, I was going to talk to you about that a little later about how people would run away from him because they knew that he was going <laughs> to ask them about being registered to vote. You know, what's, what's so fascinating to me is that Reconstruction era, and I was reading about Ben County and how more Blacks were registered to vote. There was, uh, when the, there were jury duties, then you had more Blacks sitting than whites on the jury. So it, it, it's very fascinating. Talk a little bit about just the consciousness of the people there wanting to, you know, register to vote and wanting to be uh, active in the system. I'm glad you mentioned that. Reconstruction, as you know, was was a very prominent thing in American history, and one that we don't know a lot about. It's unfortunate it didn't last very long, right. uh, only about 10 years or so. But during that period, you're absolutely right. The people of Benton County um, that had not served on juries before, served on juries, uh, the registration during that period was very high. We went back and looked at some old documents, although our primary focus was on, was on first person but we went back and looked at some documents and it was fascinating that we found these documents about black serving on juries, black registering to vote, black getting registered to vote, black owning land for the first time. Uh, and there was that period of excitement, of course, uh, as you know, we also statewide elected two uh, black senators during that period. Uh, right. It was unfortunate though, how quickly the, uh, the Confederacy came back into power uh, it's unfortunate at a time when blacks were very moving to be independent in so many ways, uh, that threat was out there. And uh, then you had this reaction to that. And then we ended up getting the Jim Crows that came along in the 1880s and 1890s, the Mississippi Constitution and all that stuff, and sort of pushed back on that. And you see from, a, from that period on up until really the 1960s, which is true of Mississippi and the South in general, you didn't see any Blacks, except for a few, who were able to even register to vote. And of course, you know, during that Jim Crow period, when they put in the uh, literature test and the constitutional test and all this other crazy stuff that they put in, which is a way to make sure that Blacks could not uh, register to vote. Even though during that very difficult time, from about, you know, 1900 to the time Mr. Reed was born, all the way up to the 1960s, there were some blacks who were determined to get registered. And sometimes they had to get white folk to vouch for, for them in order to do that. But they did it. The numbers were small. And so therefore posed no threat to the 
establishment at the time, but they continue to do so. Um, I know you're not may ask this question, but I'm particularly impressed with a lady named Miss Byrne Alexander, who mm. uh, tried to register at least 13 times. This was during the 50s and 60s. And she was determined, no matter how many times they failed her, she was determined to get registered to vote. And you'd notice that we have a little piece there in the book, uh, which we know from Mississippi history, they put your name in the newspaper, in the local, local newspaper when you tried to register to vote. And All her right. name constantly in a newspaper as a way to intimidate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that worked in a lot of cases, a lot of cases that didn't work, particularly among the landowners. That's, that's very interesting. You know, the nucleus of this book, Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country, there's this man, and you, you've mentioned him, Henry Reeves. And for me, he's like the, 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 the potter, <laughs> if you would. And, and, and he molded and helped to bring about this, this feeling of, of being woke or conscious and understanding your citizenship in Benton County. Talk about Mr. Henry Reeves. You know, we, ded- we, we dedicated the book to him. Yes. We didn't get a chance to actually, he had, he had passed away before we started the process, I think about 1990 right. or so. And I wonder too, and you probably do as well, what is it about a movement? What is it about a struggle? What is it about consciousness that some people in that DNA just seem to take something on and say, mm-hmm. I don't like this, and therefore I'm going to do something about it? Uh, even when everything around you says that nothing is going to happen, nothing is going to change. Um, I think a lot of it has to do probably with its background. He was not necessarily an educated man, not a formally educated man. Uh, as we pointed out, he was homeschooled by his, uh, by his mother um, because there was no high schools at the time. And the only schools that blacks had at the time in Benton County were uh, church schools. And so he did not get much formal education. But it was something about his folk owned land. I think that was that was that was key as well, which gave him some independence. One of the things that he did, and he's also passed that down to his nephews and other people that came in contact with him, is just this need to be independent, this need to do for self, this need to work for yourself. And one of the things one of his nephews says, Mister Leeks, I believe, is that. You work for yourself. You don't work for these white folk. And he, he wasn't trying to be racist or anything like that. He was just saying it's necessary to be self-reliant as much as you can. So he had that streak about him. And then he had that streak about him that says, look, as a citizen, and he passed it on to Ms. Robinson and others, in order to be a citizen in, in, a, in a so-called democratic republic, registration and voting is part of, is a key piece of that. And he seemed to have understood that very early, and he passed that on. So I just found him a very fascinating man, even as a boy, the first time seeing him up to the time we, we, you know, we decided to dedicate this book, uh, write about him, but just a different kind of person. And maybe that's what leadership is about. Maybe that's what um, stepping beyond your comfort zone mm-hmm. and doing what is right mm-hmm. Uh notwithstanding the challenges that you may face. I think he brought that to the table. That's, that's, that's great. Before we get into some, get in and talk about, you know, some of the personalities, 
Talk to, and you, you, you alluded to it a little bit, but talk a little bit about the process of writing this book. Were people receptive? Uh, you know, you're putting their lives on paper now. So talk about that and, and, and allow us to listen to you and, and view you discussing just how the people felt in the process of writing it again. Well, you know, we had to get that, uh, whatever that thing is called, release forms. And yeah. so everybody we interviewed, we mentioned to them that um, well, we wanted them to sign a release form. And 99.9% of the people we approached uh, decided to do that. Um, is that because they knew you? Is that... I think that's right. I think that one of the things that we uh, felt was a plus is that we knew some of the people. Uh, Aviva probably knew more than I did because she had worked in the county much longer than I had. But those people that we knew, we asked those people to tell people talk to people about the people that we didn't know as a way of an introduction. So yeah, we had to build that, uh, have that relationship or build that relationship of trust. Um, of course, many people were modest when we would start to interview them. You know, we had men as well as women who said, you know, make sure that when you come over, I have a chance to do my hair. Make sure when you come <laughs> over, uh, I have a chance to put my best clothes on, you know, and we respected that. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, they also had their spots where they wanted to be interviewed, whether it was in the kitchen, the living room or whatever. We respected that as well. So it was a relationship. Uh, I think that made it easier uh, to interview people because we were not strangers to them and they were not strangers to us. So, yeah, I would say that that's critically important to have a relationship or build a relationship with the people you want to interview. That's very true. You know, I don't know a lot about Benton County, really learning a lot just by reading the book. But, you know, you and others left and went on to school. And, and, and you know, a lot of people go away East Coast uh, and, and, and don't come back. They come back for family reunions. What made you come back to the area? Well, as I say, I'm from Holly Springs, and I left Holly Springs to go to school at a very young age. Uh, I think I was, I graduated from high school at 16. Then I went to a prep school for a year in Boston. Uh, to, your, to your question, it's a good question because one of my African professors who, is, uh, who taught French, but she also um, particularly focused on Africa, on the French part of Africa, quote unquote. And uh, she was one of my advisors in political science. And when I got my doctorate, she, I told her I was going back to Mississippi. And she said, what? Oh, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, if you stay here in Massachusetts with a PhD in Brandeis, you can make much more money than you would ever make in Mississippi. And I said, well, you kind of missed the point. Uh, it's not about the money. Uh, I have really never left Mississippi because I always came back to visit my parents and things all throughout the 60s and all throughout the 70s. And so I always had this love for Mississippi, even though I was not at all resident or hesitant about uh, criticizing my home state and knew that my home state had a lot to do, but I also knew that the North had a lot to do. Because uh, one of the things I used to say when I went to school in the North was that sometime I'd rather deal with a reconstructed Klan member than a so-called uh, uh, social liberal. Uh, and what I was trying to say is I think people that's been tested tended to be uh, much more engaged about the process. So I came back to Mississippi because I think there's something... I had to offer 
there was something that I wanted to do. Uh, and I felt that I could have more of an impact in Mississippi than I could in a place like New York or Massachusetts or California, where you had so many people already doing all kinds of things and with all kinds of resources. Um, did I miss certain aspects of the East Coast? Yes. East Coast is a beautiful place to go to school. It's a beautiful place. It's an intellectual, heavy, heavyweight place. Uh, it's a place where you can engage in all kinds of, you know, um, challenging intellectual experiences. Um, mm. But I felt my place and the place I felt most at home was coming back to Mississippi and doing something in Mississippi. That's, that's, that's great to hear. Because of that, you, you have so many young folks who are leaving, and sure. I don't think they understand the, the footprints that they start and, and coming back to complete them once they leave. That is so true. And, you know, we still have this outward migration because we still have more kids leaving Mississippi than coming to Mississippi. And I think Mississippi now really needs to step up to the plate, uh, black and white, uh, the business sector and the government sector, to do everything we can to make it attractive for our young people when they finish college, whether it's Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Rust or Tougaloo or Jackson State or Corn, to say, we uh, allow you to have an environment here. If you want to be entrepreneurs or whatever, we're going to create that environment for you. We're going to give you a certain kind of tax incentives if you want to open your own business here, for an example. We need to do a lot more of that and just not be lip service mm, as a way to attract our people, young people. Exactly, exactly. That's very good. Getting to the book, to the meat of the book, Voices from Mississippi Hill Country, the Benton County Civil Rights Movement story, there are a lot of stories in this book. I love how you did this, this chronological history and brought in the different people. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to say, tell me about this person or tell me about that person. Talk to me about what story fascinated you the most and, and then go into why. Oh, wow. There's so many stories. You put me on... <laughs> You really put me on the spot there, Miss Pam. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, there's so many fascinating stories. But in terms of the chronology, uh, in terms of context, and in the, the press, we, we, we were back and forth with the press on that. And I think they wanted to, they realized, as we do, uh, when, the, when this book was pre-reviewed, uh, that the stories are, are the most compelling part. And I believe that's to be the case then, and we believe that to be the case now. But we need to have some introduction. As you said earlier, a lot of people across this state and across this country um, have not, never heard of a small county like Ben County, Mississippi. And we thought that, that we would take uh, some time, uh, and some people felt it was a bit long, but we took some time to give that context. And then we introduced these uh, story makers. Of these story makers, uh, we know you have it divided into sections. We have the people who obviously were the pioneers who, who were just what we call the beginning of, of this movement. And then we have people who actually, you know, participated in the movement. And then we have people who are the sons and daughters of those who participated. And we have the integrators. Uh, and then we have the, the, the blacks who did not participate. And then we have the white reactors. Uh, and then, of course, we ended up with sort of the young people who kind of optimistic about the future, and we bring them in as a close. Uh, Miss 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 uh, uh, Robinson, Sarah Robinson, mm -hmm. okay. is one of my favorite. Uh, we we um, 
we interviewed about 100 people. There are only about 35 people fe- featured in the book. Uh, when you look at these, uh, and we interviewed some people for an hour, two hours, three hours, when you listen to these tapes, and we still have these raw tapes, uh, that's fascinating. At some point, we'll get that out there in a documentary. But Miss Robinson was fascinating because I think she sort of stripped it where we are now in terms of the right, the vote, and what's going on with the voting. And one of the things she talks about a lot is the importance of voting, the importance of citizenship. And, the, the, and of course, she gives a lot of credit to Mr. Reed for, for encouraging her to, to, to get registered. And then we asked the question, would you do this again? And she said, of course I'll do this again. This thing about voting for her was just so important because she said, look, I don't think I can be a citizen if I don't vote. And so therefore, in order to be a citizen, I think I got the vote. Uh, matter of fact, my daughter and I just did a a a, a, a cup um, and a mug, and we got her quote on it: "Vote, child, vote," yeah. uh, because that's important to her. Uh, Mr. Spence Richards, uh, yeah. another one who could have been a philosopher had he been able to, you know, or could have been got a PhD in philosophy had he been able to go on to school and get a, get 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 a graduate degree. Uh, is a man that for me defined sharecropping. Uh, we look for all kinds of definitions. You know, I've been a political science. My other co-editors been wherever they are. They We had our own definition of sharecropping. And you can go to Google and all these places and you have a definition of sharecropping. Mr. Uh, Spence Richards, I think, and we quote him in the book, gives one of the best uh, definition of sharecropping I think I've ever read uh, when he talks about, you know, how you're supposed to get up and supposed to be half, and yet at the end of the day, uh, he uh, he would get something, we would get a little something, but sometimes we didn't do any, get anything, and that's the nature of sharecropping because the whole point of sharecropping was not for you to get ahead, but to keep you in debt and to keep you in bondage because it was just another way of uh, it's another form of slavery. So Mr. Richards was a a fascinating person. Charlie Walls. Uh, person who has been exposed to Agent Orange, uh, went off to Vietnam, um, was not treated well uh, during that process, and yet, to me, uh, showed no bitterness uh, having served his country and then watching his country not do what it's supposed to do for him as a vet. Uh, is somebody that's very fascinating. And then there's one of the white uh, that we featured. I did not interview because, as I said in our uh, in our description there at the back, we tried to be very strategic about this interviewing process because we wanted to be out of the picture. We wanted the focus to be on the people we were interviewing. So if that was a case where, you know, I felt or we felt that my presence would uh, keep some of my white brethren from being as truthful as we wanted them to be, then I stepped away from that interview. Um, Oh, this case where, and we wanted this because we felt that a lot of white people feel that way and still feel that way. You know, he talks about what would happen if his daughter, you know, came home and uh, and said that she was dating a black guy. And, she, and he would say, you know, you're out, gone, take your stuff and leave, and I don't ever want to see you again. Mm. Uh, and he said, you know, I don't have anything against black folk as long as they stay in their place and we stay in our place. Right. But, you know, it's just this, this, this thing about misinterpretation that we don't go back generations, this false mythology that's uh, still prevalent. So that's there. Um, and then we have this uh, older lady that we interviewed that was 102. Uh, 
Uh, and at the end there, uh, you don't hear it now, but when you, if you go to our ebook, uh, at the end, I asked her to sing, and uh, beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. You know, she was reluctant to sing, but she sang because I knew that was something she loved to do. Um, and then, of course, we interviewed Junior Kimbrough's um, uh, cousin or aunt. And Junior Kimbrough, for those who don't know, is a well-known blues guy uh, from from North Mississippi. We know about uh, uh, Burnside is from North. Mississippi as well. I think he's from Holly Springs. And of course, we have uh, the Delta that we know a lot about in terms of blues, but we don't know much about the Hill Country blues. But anyway, Miss Kimbrough is a aunt or a, uh, a cousin of Junior Kimbrough. And she, she was fascinating because she lost uh, her husband at a very young age and raised all these kids by herself. And uh, we got tired of renting and went out there and got land and they told her that a woman can't own land and she said no that's not going to stop me I'm going to get land and she mm-hmm. ended up getting 50 acres wow. uh, and uh, there were instances where there was a white man ran over her daughter and crushed her daughter and nothing happened and then one of her daughter died from cancer another daughter died from a kidney failure and yet people face these challenges and I know all of us have challenges in life but you would think they would give up and they would stop and one of the things I got from these people were that no matter what happened to them, uh, no matter how many challenges they faced, they were going to keep moving forward, almost like what John Lewis talked about later. Uh, and that was fascinating. So as I said, I could just name others, but as I say, I find the stories. Every time I go back, I mean, I've read the book at least twice now since the publication, and every time I read the story, I get a different take on it. What? You know, it's interesting because I wasn't going to pull out folks, (laughs) but Spence Richard, you know, if you don't mind me quoting just a part that I thought was really something when I was reading about about him and the question, the interviewer asked, what incidents have you heard of involving racial violence in Benton County? And Spence Richard says, Huey and that other man, they were hanged across the four lane highway. Daddy went to Michigan City in a wagon after it happened. Ain't nobody around but me and him in that wagon. I guess folks was in the field. And he said, see them trees up there? That's where they hang those men. He says, now you can look up in them trees when you get there, but I'm not. So when he got up to them trees, I looked up and there was a piece of rope hanging there. Daddy wouldn't even look. That right there got me. Talk yeah. about that. It got me too. It got me too. And another another thing that got me, in addition to that, which you which you when you read this book, uh, you can't help but be um, concerned about these issues. Another issue related to uh, uh, an example similar to that, where uh, he's riding along, and he's this, this this person has been lynched, and he's there on the courthouse lawn or wherever. And he says to him with the rope around the man's neck, uh, so long that, isn't that a nice necktie that he has around his neck? And he said, I don't know any damn thing about a necktie and let's go boy. So it's a kind of inhumanity that we saw manifested there. And some of these people, uh, even though uh, we did not have any, stuff written about them in a newspaper. I'm going to give another example of something to your point earlier. Uh, and some of these things are in the uh, museum there, uh, these named Huey 
and the others are in the uh, the museum there in, in, yeah. in, in Montgomery, that these people independently, and that's why it's important to do these kinds of stories. A lot of these stories are not necessarily the newspapers or the local newspapers, but all of these people independently could say that these things did in fact occur. Because we didn't necessarily go out there asking people to speak about this. They told us about this. In one case where we did look at some documents from the, the Southern Advocate, which is a newspaper there in Ashland, and they reported what, quote unquote, was the first documented lynching in the 1920s. And they described this as being, and here's a mob that's uh, killing somebody. And they described this is that, oh, this is very orderly, that these people, this person uh, is just simply shot and, uh, and, and uh, a rope is put around his neck and uh, he's lynched. It's such caviar kind of no, no sense of humanity that took place there. So we had a number of examples like that that you just described that Mr. Richards described firsthand. So that's one of the things that, to your point, uh, we're not hearing about this through books or through hearsay. Here's a man, as a child, seeing this firsthand. Right. Seeing these atrocities firsthand. Right. You know, there was another story about Linda Davis, and uh, she married a black man. Correct. And she moved to, to, to Benton County. Can you just talk a little bit about her? That was interesting also. Now, I did not interview her. I knew about her. Uh, there's a place uh, in Benton County. It's uh, Snow Lake Shores. There's a little yeah. resort area there. And uh, she initially came to Mississippi from Maryland to work with the Army Corps uh, in Vicksburg and had said that she really had wanted no part of Mississippi. And her husband, uh, who was from Mississippi, convinced her to to come back to Mississippi. And they did. So they lived there uh, in Snake Lake, Snake Lake, uh, Snow Lake Shores uh, as a, quote-unquote, integrated couple. Um, they had two children, I think, a boy and a girl. Uh, she talked about the environment where a lot of people did not appreciate the fact that they were an integrated couple living there in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she said her husband always would say things like, it's not your problem, it's their problem. <laughs> and if they don't want to live around us, if they don't want to interact with us, if they don't want to interact with our children, that is their problem, not our problem. And she said she learned that from her husband, even though they eventually got a divorce. But she said that is something she learned from her husband. In terms of her children, she said they had the best of both worlds. They were both yeah. black and white. And she said she encountered these white people that would come up and you know ask her about whether or not these were her children because one was dark and, and one was light. And I don't know what the answer she gave. I don't remember the particular quote, but clearly there was somebody who was prepared to deal with the kind of racism uh, and had the guts and as well as her husband to live in an environment which was relatively hostile at times. But the kids apparently had a good time at school, although they had some questions about the, um, the, the quality of the school. Uh, they felt that they, the resources could have been better. I'm sure, I'm sure. Ruth Ross, you interviewed her, and her daddy's name was Reverend John Henry, a.k.a. Lightning Beard. (laughs) Right. I think I remember him uh, vividly from the 60s when I was a small person uh, there. And uh, my sense is that he was a uh, 
didn't necessarily have the same leadership qualities as, as Mr. Reeves, but one of the first people to register to vote right after the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965, and he may have voted before. Uh, interesting about him, he had two daughters that's featured in the book. Yeah. And one of them, uh, while we understand that nonviolent direct action was the principle that most people adhere to, and we understand that one of his daughters necessarily did not, um, well, she, she practiced what, what uh, was uh, uh, told you do at that time. But one of his daughters was pretty outspoken. And when she was interviewed, uh, it had to do with uh, some white um, clamman type coming up to the home. And I guess Mr. her dad going out and shooting into the air. And one of his daughters said, I, I wish they had not, he had not shot into the air. I wish he had shot him. Oh, so man. I think uh, we have to understand that there were some black people in Benton County and all over Mississippi, even in the 60s, even during the height of the, of the nonviolent direct action campaign, who were willing to, to protect themselves and do what's right to protect their families. And his daughter, one of his daughters, was uh, such a person. But Mr. Lightning was a, a very courageous man and, and obviously a very uh, significant leader there in Benton County. And there were students who were a part of desegregating Ashland School. Right. Talk a little bit about some of those students. Uh, we had, that was something that we felt that was also a missing link. I think a book had been written about the Jackson students that had integrated Murrah High School. Yes. Uh, but there hasn't been much written about North Mississippi, particularly as it relates to integration. And obviously it was a lot of trauma involved and we didn't know that at the time and perhaps parents didn't know it at the time. So when we interviewed these students, we got firsthand what it was really like for them from their perspective as young children to have been put in harm's way. Almost like Dr. King did with the kids down in Birmingham. Uh, the parents were and parents pretty much make these choices. Kids didn't make these decisions. Their parents made these decisions for the kids because the parents thought that was the right thing to do because they felt that was uh, their kids would not get the kind of education in Old Salem that they uh, wanted. So, therefore, they felt it was necessary to send their kids to Benton County and to Ashland schools. And so in talking to these kids and in, in interviewing these, these, these young people, we got a sense of the kind of hostility that they faced, but also humor. At times, in one case, um, um, uh, Spence Rich's daughter, Marshy, we called her, uh, talked about, you know, they were sitting in a classroom and one white girl would come in with a certain outfit on and the other black girl would have the same outfit. And I guess the white girl would assume that the black girl ought not have this kind of outfit because she knows she's poor or whatever and not deserving. Because for the most part, the black kids sit at the back of the room and the white kids sit at the front of the room. And that's basically where the teachers had it. And so this white girl would put her jacket on and the black girl would put her jacket on and, and then the white girl would take her jacket off. It's a little stuff like that, but it was yeah. humorous. And so yeah. she was saying, you know, sometimes you have to bring uh, humor. Some of that stuff was not humor. They had to, you know, step off the sidewalk or, right. you know, they would uh, walk into school. They would run the bus by and put mud on them and throw things out the window and uh, spitballs and call them the N-word and, and on and on. So just sort of microaggression, not outright, you know, shooting somebody or 
lynching somebody, but just these little things. And as a child, you know, it takes a, uh, it has an impact. One particular example, and I'll move on, was, uh, uh, her name is Nail. She is the daughter of Charlie Reeves, who is a brother of Henry Reeves. And Charlie Reeves was also a significant player in Benton County. And Nail talks about a spelling bee. Uh, she was a very good speller. And uh, she had gotten to a foundless position. It was on the stage, and the people in the audience were very hostile because they didn't want her to win. And so they were saying all kinds of things. And in that kind of pressure environment, she, uh, she panicked. And a word that she knew she knew how to spell at that time, she was in elementary school, popcorn, and she misspelled it. And they, she said that the kids just, audience just ex- erupted with, 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 with laughter and with excitement to the fact that she had missed that word. And she said wow. she had never seen such hate in her life mm-hmm. uh, that they would do this to a child. And that's the kind of thing that we would not have known about had we not interviewed these, these young people who, in fact, were the um, frontier integrators uh, of, of the school back in 1960, uh, whenever it was, uh, late 60s. Uh, and because they did this stuff in phases. 1970 actually was uh, that going from 69 to 1970. That's right. And the school system started back after the Christmas break. <laughs> I was one of them. So I okay, so, so you know. And I of know. course, yeah. Uh, and of course, afterwards, uh, as soon as quote-unquote integration took place and even after they had gone through all that difficulty, uh, then uh, they had this... Uh, uh, white Academy, and a lot of the kids that yeah. could afford it ended up going to the academy. And then, they, of course, they had another student in the same county, Hickory Flat, which is a predominantly white school, and whites found a way, even though it was not legal, but they found a way to get their kids to that school. So after that, the school, as you know, like all of the state, uh, ended up being predominantly black again and predominantly white. So we're coming uh, uh, to the end, but and we've talked about some amazing characters uh, and, and, and what I call celebrities of Benton County. But in a whole, talk about the heart of the people uh, of Benton County. I think that's right. We've talked about the leadership, but the, a lot of the people, uh, which we've not, um, uh, Ms. Robinson, I mentioned earlier, uh, Ms. Eldon, Earl Johnson mentioned earlier, who talks about the sharecropping system, what it's like to pick cotton, what it's like to be a woman that could do the work. And her voice is just poetic when you hear her voice. Uh, struggle, uh, perseverance, uh, stick to itness, faith. Uh, I think all the people uh, exhibited a, a great deal of faith. Uh, they were close to their church. They were close to their God. And I think all of them... Um, notwithstanding the difficulty, uh, had, this, um, had this optimism uh, that things could get better. Mm. Uh, if you remember the quote from uh, uh, one of uh, Charlie Reeves' uh, uh, granddaughters or niece, uh, Mr. Reeves, Henry Reeves' uh, granddaughter, uh, talks about, as a quote, about things not being what they used to be, mm. but they're certainly much better now. So that, 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 that spirit of, of optimism, and then we ended up with the Bid County electing the first black superintendent, um, Patrick uh, Washington later on. So, and then a uh, uh, supervisor, uh, and we didn't talk about him, but Bubba Griffin, uh, the first black elected supervisor, he talked about that process. Um, 
Joe is another fellow who, who eventually became deputy sheriff there in Benton County. Um, so this, this perseverance, optimism, faith, uh, hard work, struggle, uh, a sense of, of uh, knowing who they were, um, knowing that this thing was not going to be just uh, a sprint, but a marathon. Um, uh, the whole focus on your local people, your average people who are extraordinary people who are not in the headlines, who are not in the books, who are not on television, who are not on radio, yet felt in their environment there were some things they thought were not right. And they proceeded to move against this, to change this. Um, Mr. Reed took the lead, but there were others who, what I call many leaders, who also exemplified that kind of courage. Courage is another thing that came through. Um, and uh, not giving up. And love. I, I think those people expressed a lot of love for their, their community, a lot of love for themselves, a lot of love for the church. A lot of love for people in general, and that we are going to take this environment uh, where we find it and try to make it a little bit better. Wow, wow. You know, I, I thought about <clears throat> the African, the tenacity, the strength, the fortitude of a people who were, were displaced and, and, and ended up in a place called Benton County. And everything that you just said, the love, the strength, the courage uh, to make it and to continue going on. You know, it's been a pleasure, Dr. DeBerry, with you and interviewing you and us talking about this book, Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country, the Benton County Civil Rights Movement. I think our video went off on my end. I don't have it. I can't see anything, but I can hear you. <laughs> so okay. It has been wonderful. And again, this, this amazing book is presented by the Mississippi Book Festival. Thank you so much, Dr. DeBerry. I am Pamela Jr. from the two Mississippi museums. Thank you again. And thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Ellen. Thank you, uh, the Book Festival. And thank you, two museums, for, for doing this. Uh, by the way, uh, my last word is, uh, this is the universal thing. This book, these people, because of what we have said today, is not just local. It's also universal. It's a universal message that anybody can relate to here. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. And you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. And be safe. One love. Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.